0: Share, subscribe, and rate it Five stars Big show And beyond The greatest podcast Wherever you're listening or watching Remember, always keep it squatching. Yeah. And now your hosts, Cliff Berkman and James Bobo Fay Hello, Cliff Hello, Bobo. How are you doing today? Pretty dang good. How are you? I'm all right. I'm all right. Absolutely beautiful day here in the Pacific Northwest, uh, the rain and snow and all those kind of conditions it seems to be over with. I've said that before this same year, so I'll keep my fingers crossed for now, though. I know. The weather made liars out of a lot of people this year. <laughs> well, you know, the weather's like Bigfoot, very, very unpredictable, and it seems to have a mind of its own. Yeah. It's 85 down here. It's hot. 85? I wouldn't want that. It's like 65 here. Absolutely Perfect. Oh, that's what I like. Yeah, totally totally the mountains out and you know we had that crazy snowstorm like a week or two ago and it shut down my bigfoot spots again. Now we can't get into the spots that we've been working. Um so hopefully this hot weather will melt off the snow and you know because you know how I'm about snow, man. I don't want to drive through snow and I had to dig my friends out of snow a couple months ago trying to get to the bigfoot spot. Because, you know, you're like me, Bobos. If there's something, well, there's lots of things that might make people like you and me make stupid decisions. But Bigfoot is definitely at the top of the list. I'm on the top of the list for me making dumb decisions. <laughs> you take personal responsibility. See, I blame it yeah. on the like snow. You just do it for yourself. Like, why did you go there? Why did you make that decision, Cliff? Well, I thought I could get through the snow bank and I had to get towed out. And they ask Bobo, like, Bobo, why did you make that decision?
1: Go, I don't know. thought it was cool. Bad life choices.
0: <laughs> well right why ruin your streak now Bob? So you're, you're killing it man
1: yeah <laughs> but i'm stoked for today's show though because we got a a legend in the bigfoot world he goes for the gnome de pleur Monagahela and he's uh, the leading sasquatch vocalization analyst he's uh dave ellis who i go to is my main guy it's his mentor so that tells you something and he's been in it for a long time he's Got the background to analyze his stuff professionally, and his opinion is very highly regarded. So, welcome to Monongahela. Oh, my God, Bobo, I'm blushing over here.
0: <laughs> That's another reason we do it on radio, man, so nobody can see us. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, well, thank you very much. I'm really happy to be here. And uh, as he said, you know, Monagahela is a gnome deployer. You can just call me Devin. That's my first name. Okay.
0: Okay, I'll do that, because honestly, I have a hard time pronouncing Halo just because I haven't seen it spelled enough. Which is weird, because I'm aware of your blog. I don't know if you still have the blog or not, but I, I know that you had it for a long time with all amazing research on it, so I've seen it written a bunch. Just said, you know what, I'm not from that side of the country, and it's just a strange word for me, although my wife has it down. She goes, oh, really, that's a, place, that's a national forest out there or something, isn't it? Yeah, we've been there.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you guys did, a, uh, you did an episode there uh, at, at uh, Blackwater Falls. Uh, with Russ Jones.
0: Oh, that's in so it's in West Virginia
2: then. Yes, it is, and that's
0: Monongahela National Forest. Yeah, when you're when you're on the road as much as we were, it's kind of at some point you just get driven to a place, you know, and then you don't know where you are, you don't know how you got there or how you're getting home. You just assume that you're not your own responsibility for a while. But um, Blackwater Falls. Um, is a place where, where I'm, ver- I'm familiar with because there are Sasquatch footprints from there. There's juvenile Sasquatch footprints from that place. Just like you would probably uh, identify various locations throughout the country based on vocalizations, because that's your main focus. So, oh, Blackwater Falls? There's a Sasquatch print, a very well-documented one from there. And so,
1: Monagahela probably more people are familiar with Monogahela River, which flows out of Ohio, but it's big in uh, Pennsylvania. So a lot of Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania people know it. Monagahela more for the river.
2: Right. I, I, I think it flows right through Pittsburgh and joins the Ohio River. That's why my wife knows it.
0: That's where she's from, Pittsburgh. And She says, you should call it the Manon. And, that is, and I guess that's meaningful for people back in Pittsburgh.
2: Yeah. In West Virginia, they actually pronounce it Mangahela. Mangahela. Oh. Yeah. Too many O-Ns in there. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. The too many O-Ns. The word goes on and on. Oh, Cliff. <laughs> Thank you very much. I'm here all hour. All right, well, let's jump into this, Devin. Um, Now, obviously, your main focus, or maybe not obviously, but your main focus is uh, Sasquatch vocalizations of a variety of sorts. Well, what makes you uniquely qualified for this kind of
2: analysis? Well, that's a good question. And um, originally, I was not interested in Bigfoot at all, other than as a casual observer, any kid growing up in the 70s and 80s saw shows on television. And I always thought, yeah, wouldn't that be cool if it was real, but I'd never wasted a lot of time thinking about it. And then in about 2000, 2007, 2008, uh, I was looking for an interesting new hobby and I just happened to be (laughs) searching through the internet and I came across recordings on the BFR website and I started listening to those and I realized, you know, I've got a particular skill set that would allow me to dig deeper into this audio. And that comes from my, uh, my tenure in the Air Force as a, uh, a cryptologic linguist, uh, similar to Scott Nelson. I was in the same career field as Scott. Um, he did a 30-year career uh, in that field. Uh, I did seven years as a cryptolinguist. That's still a long time. That's a lot of experience. Oh, thank you. And yeah, I um, definitely spent thousands of hours with headphones uh, on my ears. That'd get you a PhD in college. Seven years. Yeah, yeah, it would have been. And since then, since getting interested in this type of study, you know, uh, I've spent many thousands more hours um, with the headphones on, really just focused on these types of recordings and vocalizations. So uh,
0: in your a military job, well, I mean, obviously you have you probably classified clearance and all this sort of stuff. There's lots of things you can't tell us. But um, uh, Scott Nelson told me, well, I basically had ear goggles on, you know, ear earphones on, and I listened. And if there was any incoming signal, then it was my job to record it and maybe not translate it, although I could do that. But like break it down to this uh, phonetic. Uh, language, I guess, and send it straight to the state department where they dealt with it. So he was like a, an incoming, um, con conduit or something for unknown messages to see if there's any meaning in them. Is that something similar to what you
2: did? Yeah, that's exactly what I was doing. Um, you know, we have different targets, uh, but I was doing the same thing for a different target than what he was looking at. And it was very much listen and write down what you hear break it down, analyze it, and report it to the, the people who were very interested in knowing what was going on. Have you collaborated with Scott Nelson? I mean,
1: like, got together, and if you have, what have you guys discovered, like, do you have any same thoughts on,
2: or hunches on things? Well, I'm, I'm glad you ask. and yet, um, Scott and I, we didn't collaborate deeply on his study of uh, the Sierra Sounds, but I reviewed his work uh, afterwards, and it, I... Reviewed his uh, his um, phonetic uh, alphabet that he developed as well, and in in going through that, what he did was an amazing analysis and an amazing accomplishment. And I can recognize from my training experience the methods that he applied, and I can guarantee you they're one hundred percent above board, very typical of the techniques that would be used in our you know crypto linguistic. Uh, field of studies. So I have uh, a lot of faith in his actual transcription of those recordings. I've gone back and played them and I can hear what he has transcribed about with about 90% similarity. Uh, Things can become a little subjective sometimes when you're talking about linguistics. You know, does the vowel sound more like an E or more like an A? Those things can vary. But in general, his, his, his work was just excellent, you know, above, above and beyond reproach. Did you find anything,
1: like, well, I guess you recognize the phenome structures and all that, but did you guys come up with any ideas of anything at all of what, what the meaning of anything was, or like repetitive things you could identify?
2: Not in the Sierra sounds. I did not study them as closely as he did. I mean, he really dove into it, and I kind of play the field a little more broadly, but I would concur with him that the patterns that you see there look to represent speech, uh, more so than just unintelligible gibberish. It's probably actually pretty hard to, to uh, produce unintelligible gibberish, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, everything would be completely random. And he was picking out uh, repetitive patterns in there, which become, you know, symbols. Uh, logical signals um, that contain information and, and are used to communicate. Words, basically, words and in some form or another, proto words, maybe, but it's words, nonetheless. They have meaning between the, the speaker and the listener, and we may not understand that meaning, but the, the two parties in that communication do understand it. Do you think a new AI
1: intelligence, will that make a difference or do you just have to have a starting point for that AI to even have a chance to work on it?
2: That's an interesting question. Um, I think it would have, I would say yes to both questions. It would have an impact with the right kind of algorithm. And yes, you would need some kind of a starting point, a fundamental lexicon. Now, you can begin by trying to infer meaning. And maybe you'd get it right. Scott pointed out that in a couple of lines that he transcribed there, he thought that he heard pigeon English. Now, I'm not going to say I would go that far, but if he was correct and he actually heard phrases like the word food, that would begin to be a a proto-element of a a lexicon that could be used. And if you have an AI-type algorithm That can study this sort of uh, these audio signals and begin to build out the lexicon. You might be able to to make some pretty rapid discoveries. Now, you think that there's
0: a um, uh, like with pigeon English, him hearing pigeon English. I'm assuming he's had a fair bit of experience with pigeon English, Um, and and a lot of sounds sound the same. You know, a lot of words. Maybe a word in one language might resemble some other words in a different language and whatnot. Um, How much of an element of uh, like aural pareidolia
2: do you think could come into play if one wasn't careful? A a lot, frankly. And if you're not trained in audio analysis and you're you're just a a layman who's listening to audio, that is your first go-to. Your mind will try to associate the sound you've just heard with something that you know. And so that audio pareidolia infects just about everybody's interpretation of what they've heard. And so it's something that we uh, as practitioners have to work on very hard to avoid. And, you know, don't inject uh, English into what you're hearing or any other language you might know. Uh, Don't anthropomorphize what you're listening to. You know, a moan howl might sound plaintive and sad to you. That doesn't mean it's a big sag, foot out there in the wilderness. It could have a completely different
0: meaning. It kind of goes back to one of my mantras is um, don't confuse observations with interpretations. Yeah, I think we've all heard various accounts um, in variety of languages, whether it's some indigenous language or Russian, or um, uh, I don't know. There's probably a handful of others as well. People saying that Sasquatches were um, saying words in a language they understood. In fact, I, I literally got a text about that today um, from a, 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 a Native reservation up in Washington, um, and it's not to say that the Sasquatch, if that was, if if that indeed was what was making the noise, um, didn't say that or didn't make a sound that sounded exactly like it or imitated or any number of things. But I, I think, the again, the danger is humans are always looking for patterns and things that we recognize, um, which is what pareidolia, of course, is um, in some in some form, at least. So it, it'd be pretty hard to do, um, be totally subjective.
2: Now, there's something that makes it a little more complicated in, in terms of our, our target subject here. And that is, we we seem to have really rock-solid evidence and observations of a tendency to mimic uh, sounds in the environment. And that may even extend to mimicking the human voice. You, you read these reports on the BFRO database where witnesses have heard their child's name called from out in the forest or, or things like that. Uh, you mentioned David Ellis earlier. He recorded an example of a voice apparently repeating what he had just said. He was in the forest with his dog, Kaya, and he called to the dog. He called, he said, Come here, Kaya. And within a second or two after that, you hear a, a somewhat muffled phrase in the background. And it sounds like, Come here, but it ends with Kaya very clearly. And so it's it could be a little paranoia going on there, but it sounds like Kamir Kaya is repeated back at him. I've said this example before on
0: the show, so I won't spend too much time on it, but I did get a report from, I think, Virginia. Uh, some guy was also walking his dog, and he was always calling his dog to come here and that sort of thing. And um, he saw a Sasquatch in the reserve he was in. But uh, like a year or two after he saw the Sasquatch, he continued, of course, walking his dog. Um, at one, one day he was in there and he heard his own voice. Calling for his own dog, which must have been horrifying, of course. But um, I, I, again, that's just a little tidbit, a little suggestion, a little bit more evidence um, that they are imitating noises. And it's one of our favorite topics, as of, at least, but of my favorite topics as of late. Um, the other sounds that uh, they do imitate, I always bring up car doors slamming because there's a lot
2: of researchers that have heard car doors slamming where there are no car doors. Well, I, I firmly believe that. Um, and I have a couple of experiences uh, of my own to share or, or observations. One, uh, Stan Courtney, he sent me a clip years ago where he had made a vocalization like a howl or something, uh, while he was out squatching. And within seconds, uh, a, a an identical howl in the same tone and, and timbre as his voice came back at him from a bridge top nearby. And, uh, he, I, I still have the audio clip. It's, it's a really an amazing listen. Then several years after that, uh, I was in Pennsylvania uh, at a place called Colonel Deming Park uh, with some other BFRO members. And we were just out squatching there. And I made a, a loud whoop. And I make a terrible whoop. It's, it's raggedy. It sounds horrible. It more like a whoops? Yeah, exactly. More like a whoops. Uh, but, you know, I'm not afraid to do it. And I got out there and I threw one out and we stood and listened very quietly for 30 seconds. And we were about a quarter mile in from um, from the trailhead where we had left some of our party behind. And I heard a whoop come back and it sounded just like my voice. It was identical. In fact, I recorded it. And um, we decided to split. It's like, OK, the guys at the trailhead whooped at us and, you know, and we went back. And we got to talk to them and they said, no, we never heard you make a whoop and we haven't made any whoops. (laughs) So something in the forest had whooped back at me and used my voice and imitated my own whoop as it did it.
0: Stay tuned for more Bigfoot and Beyond with Cliff and Bobo. We'll be right back after these messages. Well, let's go back into uh, your um uh, the kind of history of your own personal analysis. Um, you said that you started out by kind of putting your ears on vocalizations from the BFRO website and you probably spread out a little bit from there but what were your some of your earlier um, the very beginning of this quote-unquote career, what, was, what were some of your, your earlier um, focuses and perhaps even hypotheses that you developed at the time, whether they bore out the test of time or not? Maybe you think differently now, but tell us about your early findings and, um, and, and, and thoughts on the matter.
2: What I do when I go into a field of research that I have no real background in is I try to do away with any predisposed ideas. And and just go in with a a blank slate, and I begin to collect data, amass data, and study it, and look for patterns uh, to emerge from that data. That's the fundamentals of information analysis and uh, and development. So I went into this with no predisposition as to whether they existed or not. Uh, I'd never had I'd had a couple of weird occurrences in the forest that could be classified as class Bs, but I'd never really even thought of Sasquatch at the time. And so when I got into the audio analysis, I thought, well, let me just keep an open mind, listen to these audio signals, as well as many other audio signals, anything I can get my hands on and try to figure out what is out there in the forest making noises. And through doing that, obviously I became very well versed in the barred owl, very well versed in uh, coyote uh, vocalizations Um, Basically, anything that vocalizes in North America, especially at at nighttime settings, I'm I'm familiar with it and and can recognize it. Do you see a seasonal pattern? Not a seasonal pattern, but I do see periodicity patterns, uh, such as when I set up a a recording project, a a long-term recording project in an area. I've seen patterns of vocalizations occurring over one, two, three days and then disappearing for two to three weeks, and then coming back for one, two, three days, and then disappearing for two to three weeks. It's almost as if, and and these are the same vocalizers, it's almost as if they're moving in a circuit through the area, and they're only around my microphones for a two or three day period at the most, and then they're gone. That happens over and over again. I kind of diverged you from Cliff's question about your early stuff. Yeah. And, and, you know, a lot of, I don't know know how long our
0: our listeners' attention span is either, Bobes. You're doing fine. You represent the public. (laughs) (laughs) No, but, 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 uh, um, Devin, you were, you were saying that, like, you try to get rid of all uh, of your assumptions beforehand and dive into the data and look for patterns. Um, did you find any patterns in the early days that either you're still standing firm on, go, yeah, that was right? Or, or I always find it more interesting in some ways to find out what you think you had wrong. Do you, are there any examples like that?
2: Yeah, so here's an example of something that was wrong. Uh, and I, I had to get together with Matt on this one to get it off the record. For the longest time, the BFRO was hosting a recording, I believe, is out of Washington State, like Grays Harbor or somewhere like that. And it was a series of these ascending shrieks. Oh, Chehala screams? Yes, yes. And everybody was dubbing it, oh, that's a Bigfoot, and, uh And I listened to that. And... Those screams were unique and inconsistent with the other things that I was studying that had a higher probability of being Bigfoot. And after a number of years, we were able to capture, or somebody else was able to capture those screams in in association with coyote vocalizations. That was Tom Steinberg. Yeah, and then Tom was able to actually observe a coyote making the vocalization. And so then we can rule that one up safely as no, that was erroneous. It's, it's just a coyote.
0: Some people say, oh, that was a failure, but they don't understand what science is all about. That's actually a
2: victory. Exactly. You've ruled something out as no, don't waste your time listening to this. We know emphatically now that this is a coyote vocalization.
0: Yeah, because it's okay. It, it's okay to be wrong about something, but it's not okay to continue being wrong about that thing when faced with evidence to the contrary. You know, the rock solid evidence that is absolutely a coyote, and if you're still saying no, no, it's a bigfoot because I want it to be, it's like, oh man, what, what are you
2: doing? That's not science. That's wishful thinking. So, building from that, you know, and, and really it is all about amassing data and then wading through it, looking for patterns, repeatable patterns that you can use to rule something in as a good possibility and rule something out. Now, from the beginning, you have to start with a fundamental seed of, okay, what do we want to believe or what do we believe is the highest probability of being a Sasquatch vocalization? And so at the beginning of my analysis, I started with two seed recordings. The first was the Sierra Sounds recordings. I had to assume that these are, okay, these are authentic, not hoaxed. This is real. And the second was uh, Matt's um, Ohio Howl recording. Those are the two seeds of the lexicon and the basis of uh, my years of analysis. Building off of those two seeds, I was able to recognize patterns coming in over the months and years from other recordings that mapped back to those two seed recordings or mapped onto other recordings that had connections. And so through that analysis, you begin to build this lexicon of connectivity. You'll see signals in those seed recordings reappearing and introducing a new sound or signal. And then you'll see that new sound or signal reappearing in other recordings that come in. So, um, so in the beginning days when you're, when you're going through this stuff um, and you found
0: some things that you still agree with and, still, and, and then perhaps don't agree with anymore, um, how long
2: ago was that? How long have you been digging into the Bigfoot thing now? Oh, I've been uh, pretty much nonstop since 2008. It's a long time. And, and now I've slowed down a bit over the last few years because well, in the first four to five years, I was listening to everything, and I was digging very deep in, into audio signals that are so faint that most people simply can't hear them. But with my training, I know how to you know, really get down close to the sound floor, listen through the static, and pick out these signals, uh, especially using a spectrogram, which helps you visualize and recognize these signals. But after four to five years of that, I became rather jaded in terms of, okay, I recognize what's going to be at the noise floor level. And I'm just not going to waste my time listening to such faint signals. Uh, I I raise the bar, and if it's not a reasonably audible signal, uh, I, I don't spend a lot of time looking at it other than to recognize that you you basically uh
0: are you're separating the wheat from the chaff in the same sort of way that like a lot of us have to say that's a blob squatch whether or not it has a bigfoot in it or not i don't know maybe it does but that is a blob squatch so you have like audio blob squatches essentially
2: exactly and, and 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 i got to that point because i'd spent okay i've stared at enough blobs of audio and i can differentiate yeah this is this is probably a a, a potentially good signal but it's just so fake that it's really not waste, worth wasting time over. There's much better audio to study out there. And if I played this audio for anybody else, they wouldn't hear a thing. So why waste their time and mine? You know, speaking of audio, um, you sent us some clips that
1: you thought were pretty significant. And I listened to those. I'm sure Cliff listened to them. And those are awesome. I mean, they're just some of those, like, no one could deny. I mean, you can take a big skeptic. There's no way they could explain it. Uh, besides, you know, some kind of, you know, deep hoax, it's, it's attributed it to an animal in North America. It's inexplicable if you don't go with the
2: Sasquatch. Agreed. And the reason why I chose those clips is because, well, there, there are several. One, they, they show connectivity between each other. Um, they're examples of what I was talking about earlier, beginning with the, the prototype seed signals and building a lexicon from them, from those seeds. Um, They're also higher quality audio recordings. And that's one of the biggest problems with audio is most people get really terrible recordings. These are almost what I would call consumer grade, which means I could put them into a YouTube video and people would be able to hear them and agree or disagree with what they were hearing.
1: Well, let's listen to a couple of them. And these really good recordings we're going to listen to right now, were they done like with professional recording equipment or is this like with a little cheap
2: $90 handheld or a cell phone? Do you know? Uh, It's a variety. Some of them uh, are definitely cell phone clips. Others were done with uh, consumer grade, not or maybe even prosumer grade audio recorders, but not super high end studio type equipment, nothing like that. I'd say the most expensive recorder here might've been a couple of hundred dollars at the most which is one of the great things about um, trying to get audio
0: is because you can do it relatively cheaply. Um, You know, thermal imagers are very expensive. Night vision is very expensive. Even like good high quality video cameras are very expensive, but you can spend a hundred bucks or 150 bucks and get a a totally suitable, totally fine audio recorder. And you don't have to actually be so close to the bigfoot. You have a better chance of getting it because you're casting, uh, as moneymaker says, casting a net of ears. I encourage everybody to... It's, it's fun. I would encourage everybody to go get a $100, $120 audio recorder. And every time you're in the woods, have that thing running because you just never know when it's going to happen.
2: Yeah. And, and another pro tip, return your recorder on before you step out of your car. Yeah, always. Yep. So many times I've stepped out and, and immediately had a wood knock as I get out of my car. Yep. In fact, this first clip I'll play for you is a perfect example of that. This is... In 2010, Kirk Brandenburg and a few folks were in Morton, Washington, and they had just pulled up to the campsite and were jumping out of their vehicles to go squatch. And fortunately, Kirk turned on his recorder uh, just as he was getting out, and he captured this. This is a series of moan house with a couple of important secondary signals in it that I'll point out to you.
0: Okay, so let's listen to that clip right now.
2: So let me explain that clip a little bit. There at the beginning, there's an initial vocal before the howl, and it got stepped on by people speaking, Kirk and his group are speaking. Um, I was able to clean out a lot of their speech to bring that vocal out, and you hear that digitization in the recording. Uh, It's an artifact of the cleaning. What's unique about uh, this, the triple moan howl clip, is one, there's three of them, and that's a recurring pattern. If you go back and take a look at the Ohio house, there's three moan House. And in many other instances of moan House recorded since then, we have three moan house. So the, the moan howl triplet is a readily recognizable and recurring pattern in these moan recordings. Now, that's not to say you can't have a single, and once in a while you'll have a double. But more often than not, you'll get three moonhouse. And, and then following it, uh, more than likely, there will be a subtle whoop or two or three in response to the moan howler. From different individuals, correct? Yes. Um, so the moan howler is, you know, let's suppose it's a leader and it's reaching out uh, to the clan around it. And what we're hearing are whoop responses to that original The moan-howl vocalization. So this pattern occurs over and over consistently. Sometimes there are wood knocks integrated into the moan-howls, or there are response wood knocks after the moan-howls integrated with the whoops or what have you. But in almost all cases, and this is a good authenticator of potential Sasquatch vocalizations, is you'll have the main actor And then in the background, you'll have these secondary actors responding. And it's, to me, in my analysis, it's those secondary actors and those responses that are even more important to authenticating the vocalization than the main vocalization itself. That is to say, if I don't hear secondary responders, I have a tough time validating or authenticating this as potentially a Sasquatch vocalization. It could easily be a human out there that knows to make three moan howls in a row. Were there responders in the Ohio howl? Uh, yes, a very subtle one. There was. Do you know what part, like which seconds? I, I don't have it up in front of me, but if you listen to the three howls in the Ohio howl, I believe it's between the first and the second howl, there's a low moan, like a oh kind of moan. That, I believe, is a responder responding to the first howl.
0: Interesting, and this is uh,
2: one of those examples
0: that I love so much. That uh, you're studying one thing, um, in this case vocalizations. I do the same thing with footprints all the time, and but by studying one aspect of the Bigfoot thing, Bigfoot phenomenon, you learn a little bit about the behaviors of the animals themselves. Because I've said it before, if Bigfoots are real is no longer an interesting question for me. It's how they're real, like how they go about their business and do their thing. And by learning about their social structure, like one one, uh, vocalizer with some responders, that tells us something. That tells us something about the way they live. And that's what I think is the coolest part about studying these animals.
2: Exactly. There's a lot you could potentially learn through the study of their communications uh, about how they live and move uh, in groups and stay in touch with each other in densely forested environments where they may not be able to, to see each other uh, as they're moving. What, what clip would you like
0: to play for us next? Because this is great. It's like Christmas or something.
2: You know? Sure, sure. So you guys will notice that I, I, I put a number in front of each of the clips so that we could play them in order. That was zero, one. Now what we can do is we can take a look at zero two and I'll point out some similarities between uh, track one and track two before we go on. Let me just read some, a uh, couple of notes that I wanted to point out about track one. So there's the three sequential moan howls, just like the, uh, the Ohio howl, uh, there's an integrated wood knock after the first howl. If you play it back, you'll hear that wood knock. Notice in the howls that there's a sustained flat pitch. That's a characteristic we like to see in uh, these type of uh, candidate vocals. And then towards the end, we get the two response vocals, those whoops at the end, uh, and those responses are, are very important authenticators. Now, key points here are that if these are authentic, these types of signals should be reoccurring in other recordings that we study that come into us over the years. And I can tell you, these patterns do reoccur uh, fairly frequently for us. We have many examples of them. So those are the key points about that first recording. Now, the second recording uh, I'll play for you uh, is from Isabella County, Michigan. And there's a uh, a lengthy BFRO report number 32981 uh, that was put together by Jim Sherman, a BFRO investigator uh, up in, in Michigan. Great guy. He worked with a witness in Isabella County uh, back in 2011-2012 time frame. And this clip comes from 2012. And uh, I'll just let you go ahead and play it, and then we'll talk about what we're hearing there. Yeah, we filmed
1: an episode there. We didn't identify it because the people that wanted to remain anonymous with that, where these recordings
2: were had, we were actually there. Yeah, I know they've since moved away from that location. They no longer live there. And I don't think Jim gets back up there to research that area much anymore. All right, well, let's take a listen to this next clip from Michigan here. best ever. <laughs> oh, we've got better than that, believe me. Really? Yes, yeah, definitely. But
0: you're right, those are some of the very best ever. Well I, I gotta ask now, I mean some of those sounded to me honestly like canine. What is the differentiators between something like a wolf, which we know are present in Michigan, and a Sasquatch making a sound that because it sounds a
2: little canine-ish, right? Yes, great question. And it goes back to the point I was making earlier about those secondary signals. When you dig into canine vocalizations, you recognize that they have certain timbres or tones in their voice. Uh, There are certain sounds they can make and sounds they cannot make. Uh, There are execution changes. Let's call it a pitch change that they're incapable of, of making that you will hear in these clips. And now in this particular recording, I've trimmed out so much of the additional audio um, that came with this from this evening that you don't hear the whoops and the wood knocks and all of that stuff. I just took it out and just focused on these particular three vocals to point out some important points. But that is a great question. You have to look at the bigger picture and understand how a canine vocalizes versus the differences with these types of vocalizations.
0: But for someone like yourself, you can listen to this and say, "Now, it may sound like I'm superficially canine, but there are things in here that canines are unable to
2: do. Exactly, yeah, and I'll point one of those out. Um, before we proceed, I will say that in this second howl, there is a dog barking over it, but that's that's clearly a dog. So in the first, the first howl there, what you hear is it sounds, starts out sounding like a roar, you know, this loud, roaring voice. That, that's a broadband vocalization. It's vocalizing across a wide range of frequencies. It's very visible in the spectrogram, but it's vocalizing across a wide range of frequencies. And then a few seconds into its vocalization, it tightens the pitch on its call and it narrows down to a very narrow bandwidth vocalization, which is the long, flat howl that you hear uh, executing. That's not typical of canines. First of all, the broadband roar is very unusual for a canine. You might hear that in a lion, and then but then the transition from that broadband to narrowband howl. Uh, I don't have any examples of that occurring in canines, and, and I don't know how many canine vocals I've, I've listened to over the years. So that's a very unique characteristic. And that characteristic appears again and again in other recordings. Uh, The second thing I'd point out about this is the long, flat pitch. We know from recordings captured by, I believe his name is Steve Johnson. This was back in the early 2000s, I want to say up in Washington or Oregon. The fellow was out there with a cassette recorder, and he and his friends were able to capture some incredibly long, flat howls and that flat pitch is a pretty important indicator. And we see that time and again in these types of howls. You'll also notice the way these howls execute, it's an OO phoneme. So it's like OO through most of the the howl. But as you'll see in in the next couple of clips, that phoneme can change to an AH and that change is another important uh, indicator. And then at the end of that clip, what you heard are a couple of broadband shrieks, uh, as as I call them shrieks, anyway. These are unusual to hear anywhere out in the forest. And there's a few more examples of these that we'll hear later on. And they are unique, uniquely associated with these suspect candidate vocalizations, uh, I've nicknamed, nicknamed them falsetto shrieks or a cry, and you'll hear this. It's, a, it's an interesting type of a response vocal that we capture from time to time. Stay tuned for more Bigfoot
0: and Beyond with Cliff and Bobo. We'll be right back after these messages. Let's take a listen to uh, the third vocalization you have. It looks like it's from Minnesota. Is that correct?
2: Right. Now, um, this is just a tiny fraction of what is originally a 23-minute-long recording. Play the whole thing, it'll be our free bird. <laughs> yeah, Dark Star. Yeah. It'll blow your mind when you hear it, the full clip. So this comes from St. Louis County, Minnesota, again in 2012. Uh, 2012 was a great year for audio. Captured by Mike Palachek. You know, Mike left a dead drop recorder in the field going overnight and it's early spring or maybe March or April and the snow is melting. So there's, you know, drops of water coming off the trees and, and you, you can hear some of that from time to time. What he captured is after my analysis, my interpretation is a group of four potential Sasquatch approaching the region, the area of his recorder two of them moving very close to the recorder, probably within one or 200 yards of the recorder, and howling very loudly before they move off into the distance. And it takes them about 23 minutes to first be heard and to the point where they're last heard as they move away. There are also two other Sasquatch in the distance, maybe a quarter mile away, I don't know, who are responding and they are calling back and forth to each other as they move uh, through the night. This was recorded around 4 a.m., 4 to 5 a.m.
0: All right, well, let's take a listen
2: to it then. That crazy or what? That's cool. Yeah, you're my favorite DJ. <laughs> hey. He's bringing out the hits. Yeah, you know, I'll I'll, I'll play for a plane ticket. You know, <laughs> and just fly me out there. You have to like pump in your fist, like one of those big DJs, like just rocking to it. Yeah, good set of turntables. <laughs> Going old school. uh Okay, so let me talk about what we just heard there. Um, Again, you'll notice there's that long, flat, sustained pitch. But there's something different in these. You notice how they end. They go from ooh to ah right at the end. Ooh, ah. And so that's a phoneme shift from an ooh phoneme to an ah phoneme. Canines don't do that. Okay, now canines can make oohs and canines can make ahs, but they do them in standalone calls. Like you'll hear coyotes making this, ah, like screaming sound. But they don't start with an ooh and then go to an ah. Or you'll hear them make an ooh, kind of an ooh-like uh, howl. But it's always distinctly with a canid tone. You can hear that canine muzzle in their voice. They, they vocalize from their nose and from their muzzle. These, the, the timbre, the tone of these are very different from canine. So you've got the ooh to ah phoneme shift. If you pay attention or you play that loop back again, you'll notice, especially in the first how, there's a very brassy tone to it. It almost sounds like someone has, has gotten a trombone or a trumpet out or something and hit a nice brassy note on it. That's actually the voice of this vocalizer that is making that brassy tone. That's a pretty important indicator, and we, we like to hear that. We hear it time and again in other vocalizations, that good brassy timbre. uh, We call it a a metallic pitch sometimes. The third howl in there, uh, if you listen closely to that, you'll recognize it's different from the two preceding howls. It's more of a moan howl in execution and in tone. It sounds like the Ohio howls or like the triple moan howl out of Martin Washington. But in that case, it's just a single moaning howl. And then you've got that crazy vocalization at the end. Now, if you've ever heard a canine vocalize like that, I want you to send me the clip uh, because that's just, that's so unique and so unusual. The closest we come to hearing things like that is out of apes. And I don't know of any apes in Minnesota uh, if out in the forest at 4 or 5 a.m., but that unique vocalization is just a great capture. Now, that brings up an interesting new feature that we look for. This is also part of the lexicon. Sasquatch vocalizations, while we start to see these recurring patterns, we also recognize that they do some really crazy, freaky sounding vocalizations from time to time, just far beyond anything that you hear any other animal doing. And they involve things like these human like shrieks uh, that we heard in the, in the last clip, or this, uh, or, the, or the previous clip, or this crazy sounding loop de loop whoop, or whatever that thing was. They're just so unusual. And th- that's actually a characteristic that we love it when we can capture that. And we do hear that quite often.
1: Yeah. So in this fourth clip, it says, Stanislaus, is that? Stanislaus National forces. Was,
2: was that from the strains? Cliff will have to tell us where this one came from, because he said it to me years ago. Yeah, this is uh, actually my first vocalization ever
0: recorded. Um it was on I was out on expedition with the strains. It was a BFRO trip actually. Bob Strain was there, and Kathy, of course. And this is before they are married, so she was still Kathy Moskowitz. And um, Tommy Amarone was there. All sorts of people were there, um, really. It, w- it was only a little bit after that trip I met you on, actually, Bobo. Yeah, I, I met you, of course, in Humboldt. And, I, and this was uh, just a few weeks or a month or two later, I think, at the most. And um, I had a mini-disc recorder out at the time with an omnidirectional microphone, and I, I put it about 120, 150 yards away from where uh, base camp was, and it wasn't even dark at the time. It was actually just before dusk. It was late, late in the afternoon, and um, or early evening at least. It was still pretty much daylight though, and of course I put it on the wrong side of camp because the vocalization came from the opposite side of camp, which is why you hear talking um, over the vocalization. Uh, because people were between it and uh, the recorder. so
2: And, and let me get, give you a little setup for this before I play it. Uh, the talking I was able to minimize uh, through some editing software. So you'll hear some of that uh, digital artifact at the beginning of the clip. But what I want you to listen for in this one, you'll recall from the last clip uh, that I described the ooh to ah phoneme transition. See if you can hear something similar in this clip. Okay, let's take a listen then.
0: Yeah, basically sounds like a dude yelling, kind of, you know.
2: Yeah, yeah, but what's important are its similarity to similarity to these other clips. You've got that flat, long howl with an oo phoneme that transitions in a pitch break to an ah phoneme at the end. So that ooh, ah combination is becoming very important. In fact, it's, it's become a, a, a very significant indicator and authenticator. Also in this clip, if you play it back and you listen closely, there are two secondary signals that help to authenticate this. Right in the middle of the ooh part of the howl, there's a whoop in the background, it's subtle. But if you use a spectrogram, You can see the whoop as you're playing the audio. And then after the howl ends, after the ah portion of the howl ends, two seconds later, there's a deep percussion, which has a strong possibility of being a wood knock. It's deep in the stereo field. It's not part of your camping group. It's not close to the microphone. It's often the distance in the stereo field. So that has a good chance of being a wood knock. I had no
0: idea those things were in there and I've been sitting on this vocalization since I got it.
2: Well, this is a good example of where you need some skill with audio analysis software and uh, to clean up audio and bring out these subtle vocalizations that are being stepped on, you know, by conversation and and things like that. And before anybody jumps to the conclusion that, hey, you're manipulating the audio and creating these artifacts and things like that, uh, I want to lay that to, to rest. We have a very cautious approach to cleaning audio. Uh, we know exactly what type of noise to eliminate. Uh, we have a very prescribed methodology for eliminating that noise. We use that methodology consistently from clip to clip. And we do when we do something such as minimizing voices, uh, we're very clear about it and upfront. So if... Anything emerges after the cleaning of the audio we pointed out, just as we have here, the whoop and the wood knock are in there. Uh, in the original audio, they're just very hard to hear if you don't clean some of the noise out of the way first. All right, well, let's go on to uh, the fifth recording that you have for us. So this recording, these are called the Bruno Howls. They came out in 2013 uh, from the town of Bruno, West Virginia. You'll hear a howl in progress at the beginning of this, but as this plays out, you should hear characteristics of the howl that we've already heard in other howls. And again, this is an example of relating these signals from one recording location to another recorded location, separated by thousands of miles and by years of time. And uh, towards the end of this clip, there's a very unique vocalization in here. I referenced it earlier. I called it a shriek or a cry. I've actually looped that cry in here three times just so your ear can hear it. So let's go ahead and we can play that one. It was obviously raining too, right? Yeah, it was wet conditions. And so the lady who recorded this on her cell phone was standing on her front porch. You hear, you know, water coming off a roof and pouring into a puddle. So what we have going on there is because she was with her cell phone, there was already a howl in progress when she got the recording started. And and so we hear the tail end of that howl at the very beginning of the clip. Uh, What we hear after that are two more howls. There's a rooster in the background that crows a couple of times. And then at the very end, I've looped that descending cry vocal. It's like, ah, that vocal is, it's that falsetto shriek that I mentioned earlier, or uh, the cry vocal. That's a responder. That's a second vocalizer responding to whatever is making these long, I hate to use the word mournful, (laughs) but these long mournful sounding howls. (laughs) It sounds like a crow, almost like sound when it responds to me. Yeah, yeah. If you hear just one example, I could understand that, definitely. I don't, I don't think it's a crow. I'm just saying like, I've heard that sound where it sounds like a crow. Yeah, and, and I've heard other examples of this in, in different recordings where it's even more emphatically like a, a, a shriek or a cry. And uh, it's, it can be a little unnerving to listen to it. Um, now. About these howls, what I'll point out, the similarities you should see in these are, again, this howl starts with a broad band howl. You know, that roar in the beginning narrows down to that tight, narrow band, ooh, phoneme howl, and it does that twice. Both howls uh, have that pattern of execution. So we've already heard it up above. We're hearing it again in Bruno, West Virginia in 2013. So recurring pattern. Um, and then we get the shriek, uh, the falsetto shriek, or the cry at the end, which is a responder. And again, it's the secondary vocals that are very important to showing us that this is a form of communication. There's a, a transmitter or a receiver, and then the receiver is responding to the original transmitter.
0: It kind of does away with this whole idea that Sasquatches are largely individual solitary animals. And
2: Yeah, well... If you uh, study communications theory, the whole purpose of communications is to transmit information. If you're a loner in the woods, you don't need to communicate. You keep your mouth shut.
0: Did I, are they out there talking to themselves? I doubt it.
2: No. It, that would be dangerous. I mean, think about the way they live. They're, they're cryptic. They want to stay unseen. Why bring attention to yourself by vocalizing needlessly? So I guess the final one we got is the Kentucky sounds. Uh, I wanted to end with this one because it kind of ties together a lot of what we've seen in all of these other clips. This is much more complex. Uh, It has some of the unique weirdness that we've come to expect from uh, potential Sasquatch vocalizations. You'll hear the flat pitches. You're going to hear pitch breaks in here, uh, which are strongly correlated with potential Sasquatch vocals. Um, There are whoops in here, but they're, different kind of whoops. They're like a newer type of whoop. Uh, There are falsetto shrieks at the very end, uh, which are very unusual. And you may be able to, in the first long howl, there are three integrated wood knocks. So the howler is possibly making these three wood knocks at the same time, or it could be somebody else making the wood knocks at the same time as the first howl. But let's go ahead and play this. And you should be able to recognize things in this one recording that we've heard in many of the preceding recordings and then pick up a few new uh, signals and, and keep your ears open for the whistles.
0: Lot going on in that one. And the audio quality isn't as good as the other ones. I
2: guess it's further away from the source. Um, Was there a lot of background noise in that one as well? Yeah, this was a really challenging recording to work with. Um, This was a a paranormal group, and and this comes from the year 2010 uh, in Kentucky. This paranormal group went out into the forest where there's an old abandoned house, and they were there trying to pick up ghost signals or paranormal activity of that sort. And they took the recording into the house left it in the kitchen, I guess, on a counter in the kitchen. And unfortunately in the house, most of the windows were smashed out. And then they walked back out onto the front porch. The digital sound effect that you heard in there is where I had to scrub their voices out because they were talking about the Bigfoot howl while the howl was occurring. They could hear it. But the recorder was able to pick up enough of these vocalizations through the window that through a little amplification and noise filtering, I could clean it out. Unfortunately, the signals are a little over-amplified, so you, you hear some clipping in there. It's not the greatest quality. But in terms of complexity of signals in it, it's it's a really important, uh, valuable recording. They've got everything in the kitchen sink in that one. Yeah. Um, the way this one starts, uh, there's a, a vocalizer that makes two whoops, and they're fairly typical. They start low, they ascend, but then they... And with these three beats or three notes like whoop, do, do, do. And it's, that's just an unusual whoop. It's the only time that's ever been recorded. But it does it twice. And it's a fairly soft voice. You might speculate it's a juvenile. Who knows? But then shortly after that, this loud howling vocalizer with a long, flat pitch kicks off. And in that first howl is where we also get three deep knocks Hard to hear, but you can see them on the spectrogram. And once you see them, you can loop that section and they're much easier to hear. And and so they're integrated into the howl apparently. Uh, The second howl kicks off fairly flat. This one's descending a little bit. And that's when the, if you listen to the original recorder, you can hear one of the, the speakers out on the front porch say, that sounds like a Bigfoot. Second howl ends, there's a slight pause. And then something else responds with three woots. It goes woot, woot, woot. It's a a deep sound, but they're in there. And just before the third howl begins, you'll hear these three woots. So the third howl kicks off, long, flat pitch. But towards the end, it gives us a pitch break. Pitch breaks are really hard for canines to do. Canines can slide their voice up and down in pitch, but a clean pitch break it's even difficult for many humans to to go from one pitch to a higher or lower pitch without any break uh, of air or, or time in between those two pitches is really challenging. So it takes a trained voice to do something like that.
1: How, how often do you get that circular breathing, you know, like those Tibetan monks style where they inhale and exhale and make
2: vocalizations on both of them? We, we don't really get that. Uh, I, I don't have any examples that we've yeah. yeah. There's been a theory of something like that uh, going on, but while I've studied, you know, Mongolian chant and things like that, just to learn how to recognize it, that's a that's biphonic vocalization. I don't have any solid examples of it. And, and, and I'll be honest, I've got audio submitted from at least 250 people over the last 14 years. What's the longest um, howl that you've personally heard a
0: recording of, or in, or in, you know, in real life, if you've heard it? Because I've heard, I've heard these stories of
2: 10 to 20 second or more howls. Among the, the recordings, from, I wish I could remember his first name, Johnson. I want to say Steve Johnson. He has a clip in there and he only got part of the howl, I believe. But the longest howl in his recording was about 14 seconds. Which is an awfully long time. Yes. Very long. And, and you'll see most of these howls are longer than what a human would typically be capable of doing. A well-trained human who's done this kind of audio analysis can teach themselves to, to mimic some of this stuff, but most people don't know this. And I'm certainly not advertising it. In fact, we're giving away a whole lot of secrets here. <laughs> Nobody listens to the podcast. You're safe. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's always the potential that people are going to study vocalizations like this and do their best to go out there and try to hoax and make a fool out of those Bigfoot researchers. I fooled Dave Ellis. He said he was listening one time and he, he thought for sure it was a Bigfoot
1: and then it, was, it turned out to be me. There's a fine line there anyway, Bubs. You have a good moan
2: Thank you. That's what she said. But there are ways to, that we had to differentiate between humans mimicking uh, potential, uh, a potential Bigfoot and an, an actual potential Bigfoot there's at least two levels. There's the audio capture uh, level, where we can spot evidences of hoaxes just in the way the thing is recorded, and then there's the actual execution of the vocal itself. I've never heard a human make anything better than a convincing moan, howl, or a whoop, and even in the moan howl, I can spot things that tell me, nope, that's a human. That's that's not a that's not a, a Sasquatch. I run across this a lot because people say that uh, you know, all these
0: aspects about footprints are out there written in books. Dr. Meldrum's written about them. There's, there's these papers that are published. Um, who's to say these aren't fake? Oh, well, just well, when you have so many of the characteristics together in one place, um, especially in repeated uh, circumstances, whether it's a, a track line or number of vocalizations out of the same area, it, it just becomes su- such a diminishing uh, possibility that th- these would all be fake. And, and something that you point out earlier is that well, if, if These are real animals doing these things, and they're Sasquatches. We should find many, if not all, of the same characteristics, no matter where they're recorded throughout the country, and the same does go with footprint casts. You mentioned, of course, uh, uh, Scott Nelson's work on the chatter. Have you uh, done a lot of work with that sort of chatter? I'm, I'm sure I'm not sure, but I would imagine that the Sierra sounds represent probably the longest unbroken string of that sort of thing. But do you have other examples from other places uh, that maybe resemble that, or are better, or, or not better, but longer? Or uh, what are your ex- what's your your experience with chatter?
2: Another great question. I'm glad you asked that one. Um, so that the Sierra sounds are probably the best and longest example of audio that could potentially be interpreted as speech and, and transcribed that way. There are other examples that have come in over the years, um, but they're, all of them are shorter. Uh, all of Almost all of them are not of such good quality. Uh, definitely not a similar duration. The real challenge with getting chatter is it's not allowed to, long distance vocalization like these howls and knocks and moans and whoops. It's an up close personal type of vocalization and you have to have your microphone close enough to be able to capture that. That's exceedingly rare to get those types of captures. I think over the years, I've probably had a half dozen clips that were close enough to pick up something like uh, potential chatter. Um, one of them came from, again, Washington State. I forget the fellow's name at the moment, but he was sleeping in a shed and had his recorder going. And he captured what sounded like two females speaking a a guttural foreign language uh, right outside of his shed. And and that's probably one of the best examples I've heard since uh, the Sierra sounds. But yeah, speech-like vocals are very hard to find just because they're, you've you got to be close to capture that kind of stuff. Are you
0: completely convinced? This is going to put you on the spot now. Are you completely convinced Sasquatches are real at this point um, based on the vocalization studies that you've done?
2: Yes, it was the vocalizations uh, more than any other evidence you could show me. You know, photographs, videos, just not convincing enough because I don't have the skill set to break them down and analyze them. But I can, for myself, analyze this audio And I can go out into the field alone and experience the same vocalizations. I can induce these vocalization responses from the forest. I I was doing this in 2010. As I got into this, I I realized, okay, I have to prove to myself whether these things are really out there or not. So I went to the most remote part of West Virginia, the Monongahela Forest, that I could find. I had been there many times since I was a kid. And I camped solo. Nobody knew I was there. Nobody within miles of my location. And I walked around and I made wood knocks. No vocals, just wood knocks as the sun was going down. And about 90 minutes later, my recorder picked up five wood knocks responding or just coming out of the forest. And when I heard that, I realized, okay, there's got to be something out there making these knocks. And I continued doing that solo Uh, camping trips on my own for about a year, year and a half. And I got to where I would go out and I would make a a whoop and a knock because it's a a signal pattern that I'd come to recognize in vocals, in recordings. And I would go out, I would make a whoop and a knock and listen for three seconds. I'm sorry, for three minutes. I'd keep my recorder going, obviously, the whole time. If I heard nothing, I'd repeat the whoop and a knock. And, uh, normally by the third time I did the whoop and the knock, I would get a response. How long a gap in between you said you'd wait? About three minutes. Just stand, stand real silently, listen for three minutes. I totally freaked myself out and I kind of stopped doing this (laughs) when, um, I went to a, a great location, uh, in, in Virginia uh, it's kind of a natural trap that deer passed through. And you could just picture a Sasquatch sitting on the ridge, watching these deer come through this funnel. And I walked into the funnel as the sun was going down. And by the time I I made my first whoop knock, waited three minutes, made my second whoop knock, waited three minutes. And I made my third whoop knock. And immediately something just yelled, chattered back at me out of the woods. Almost like shut the hell up, but it was, it was not a human voice at all. It was just something yelling at me in the distance, and it it made a wood knock as well, and it just scared the crap out of me. <laughs> and so I, I had to hike out in the uh, in the dark on my own. But it was the best response I had gotten up to that point. Did you encounter it on your hike out at all? No, no. Uh, fortunately, it was not between my truck and I. It was deeper into the forest than I had already hiked. And so I was able to hike away from it.
0: (laughs) Yeah, you don't go knocking unless uh, you think the door might open. So careful what you do.
2: Yeah, yeah. Well, that was when I was still trying to prove to myself that there was something out there. And and that was the night that did it for me. It's like, okay, I not only heard the knock, I heard the voice as well. And uh, I I just trudge on with the research. I make amazing, interesting discoveries along the way and share it with the folks who are doing similar good work, Stan and, and Dave Ellis and, you know, several others out there. And, uh, and, and I enjoy it. You know, it's, it's a, a great pastime. And I love sharing it with people who are similarly interested in the subject. That's great. Cause we're going to have you on the next 10 episodes straight.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I hope you're not busy for the next six or seven months. Well, it's been a
2: great conversation guys.
0: Yeah. This has been yet another in the seemingly endless line of really good podcasts we've been doing lately with fantastic guests. Um, Devin, thank you so much for coming on and and telling us what you have uh, discovered for yourself by doing uh, studies in your area of expertise on Sasquatch vocalizations. I found it very enlightening. I really appreciate it.
2: Thank you, Cliff. I've really enjoyed the conversation, and uh, I just encourage others who, if you feel like you have any interest in this subject, any angle that could help you understand this mystery that we're all pursuing and trying to learn about. Get engaged. Uh, Don't worry about what others have to say. Use your talents. Go out there and and prove it to yourself.
1: Well, thanks so much, Devin. And I hope everyone out there listening learned as much as we did. This is very enlightening. And you got an open door invite to come back anytime you got something ready for us. Well, thank you guys. I really enjoyed myself. I look forward to coming back. You take it easy, man. Thanks. That was
0: fantastic, Bobo. And by the way, if, if, if people who are listening, Devin has a website. He has a blog that you can listen to a lot of these vocalizations on and read about his analysis of various uh, Sasquatch vocalizations. It is a uh, Sasquatch And if you, can't under, if you can't, that's too crazy of a, of a title or whatever. Just look in the show notes. There is a link in the show notes. You can go straight to the
1: website and check out what Devin's been up to. Yeah, it's a great website. His blog's awesome. Check it out. And he'll be back. So keep tuning in to Bigfoot and Beyond with Cliff and Bobo. Thanks so much for listening. And until next week, keep it squatchy.
0: Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Bigfoot and Beyond. If you liked what you heard, please rate and review us on iTunes.